And these last few years have been tough years for churches. And in January of this year, there was a, a study released that had tracked the closing of churches and the opening of churches in the United States. And uh, since 2019, more Protestant churches have been closed than have been started. Uh, in 2021, some statistics about uh, church attendance were uh, released. And in 2021, church attendance had fallen to an, an all-time low. Approximately 28% of people said that they attended a worship service at least one to two times a month. 28% of people. And this isn't even a guarantee that they were attending a healthy church that loved the Bible and loved the Lord Jesus. But if you have committed your household to the weekly worship of the Lord Jesus in a local church, you are in the minority, my friend. You are in the minority. And we should long for people around us to prioritize the gathering with the people of God at a church that preaches the Bible and confesses Jesus alone. But we need to be those who are prepared to live a countercultural life. You, you must be uh, aware of the minority positions that Bible-believing, Christ-confessing Christians are in. And I wonder if you're prepared to live the countercultural Christian life. You could just call it the Christian life. Uh, because, by definition, the Christian life is lived unto Christ and therefore against the sinful patterns and trends of the world. It is, by nature, countercultural. I wonder if you felt all the strong winds outside these last 48 hours. My goodness. And I wonder if it moved your roof shingles around like it did ours, maybe knocked over some things on your porch, caused some big limbs to fall. I wonder if you were trying to walk around in the wind at all. Yesterday, my wife looks at me and says, maybe we should walk around a little bit outside. So we got outside. We went about, we went about 20 yards, and we were like, this was a terrible idea. We're just going to turn around and go back home. And, um, and when, you, when you are bombarded by these gusts of wind yesterday, you know, they were reaching upwards of 60 miles an hour, some reports said. I think about walking faithfully in Christ as living in a culture being bombarded constantly as Christians with worldly wind gusts. Strong blows from every direction. Our cultural atmosphere isn't calm. Our cultural atmosphere isn't even slightly breezy. Our cultural atmosphere is intense with wild gusts of wind causing us to sway and move. Important to remember is that following Jesus doesn't mean going the way the wind is blowing. That's easy. We will notice that submitting to the scriptures and seeking to glorify God means going against the wind. That is difficult. I wonder if you're prepared for that. Are you prepared to be misunderstood for what you believe? Are you prepared to be understood for what you believe and reviled for it? The pressures around the writer in Psalm 12 are such that what he saw seemed to be the prevailing influence of the wicked. It seemed to be that the righteous were vanishing. In Psalm 11, some people told David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But in Psalm 11, David ended with great confidence in God. God is righteous. He will judge the wicked. He will vindicate the upright. And sometimes we sound like David in Psalm 11. With our words, we might say, the Lord is in control. Don't fear. The wicked shall not prevail. If God is for us, who can be against us? Other times we sound like David in Psalm 12. Oh God, 
Where have the righteous gone? Everything seems to be falling apart. What are you doing, Lord? The wicked are prowling and taking advantage, and the powerless seem trampled underfoot. The righteous say both Psalm 11 and Psalm 12, you see. Psalm 12 at first seems like a shift in mood, but we see in the totality of Psalm 12, David's hope remains in the Lord. What his complaint, what his lament seems to be prompted by is the widespread words that mislead and destroy those around him. Especially those most vulnerable to those words, the needy, the poor, the weak. And David sees absolute atrocities committed and people being trampled by evil, wicked agendas and words. And the superscription tells us this is a psalm of David. So this is the king of Israel concerned about these cultural and social issues in the region. And his opening cry is the word save. It's the first word in verse 1 of his psalm. In verses 1 and 2, we see the prominence of the wicked. And the prominence of the wicked in verses 1 and 2 is what compels David to call for the Lord to deliver. That's what save means. It means to act with rescue. To deliver, to save, O oh Lord. Here is David, the king of Israel. Leader of this massive army of the Israelites. A king who was no stranger to warfare and to victory. And he knows... That his refuge must be in God. He doesn't look at his military forces and his weaponry and his past successes and think, oh, we're, we're fine. He says, save, O oh Lord, save, deliver. For the godly one is gone. And he's called for the Lord to save. In chapter 3-7, his psalm had said, save me, O oh my God. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Chapter 6, verse 4. Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. One refrain that we see throughout the Psalms is David looking into the Lord and saying, Save! Deliver me! And the reason that David prays this is an unsettling observation. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. He could be speaking of himself in the third person because when people opposed David, including Absalom, his son, it resulted in the king leaving Jerusalem for a time. So quite literally, the king of Israel had been gone from the area. It could also be a way, not just of David, but more broadly, speaking about looking for someone who is righteous. And what he sees when he looks around is so much wickedness that he says, Lord, we need you to deliver for the godly one. I'm just, I'm looking around and I, you know, where have the righteous gone? And he continues saying, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. The godly person here in verse 1, it's a word that means faithful to the covenant. That's how someone is described as one godly. Someone who looks to their life in light of God's promises and lives to trust the Lord's promises and who seeks to follow the Lord, they are those who live godly. It's not because David is perfect or any of the people around him who have seemed to vanish were perfect. No, they weren't. But they're looking to God and therefore they are the godly ones. They're hoping in God and therefore they are the godly ones. They live for the glory of God and therefore they are the godly ones. Their life What they're about, their whole identity rooted in what it means to know this God. 
So the first line might seem like an, uh, an overstatement. The godly one is gone, but it's, it's further unpacked by that second line. The faithful have vanished. When David looks around, it looks like the wicked are running everything. Elijah, later on in biblical history, would feel this way in 1 Kings 19. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I, Elijah said, even I am, I am only left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, Elijah wasn't the only one left, but I think David and Elijah are representing here the feeling that sometimes the righteous might feel within them. Are there not others following the Lord? Where are the righteous? And in Micah and in Isaiah, similar sentiments appear under those prophets. In Micah 7, the godly have perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. In Isaiah 57, 1, the righteous man perishes. And no one lays it to heart. The devout men are taken away while no one understands. So these prophets like Isaiah and Micah or someone like Elijah earlier on or David earlier still, they see the prominence of the wicked. That's what verses 1 and 2 in our psalm are about. And they, they cry out to God because they have enough moral discernment to recognize we need the Lord's delivering hand and we need judgment upon evil. He looks around at the children of Adam, the children of man, and he seems to see the wicked have vanished. One of the prominent ways the wicked have, or the righteous have vanished, one of the ways the wicked seems to have shown their great strength is in verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. In verses 1 and 2, we see that his call to save is because of the prominence of wickedness that is shown to diminish neighbor, especially through speech. Everyone utters lies, he says. Flattering lips, a double heart. That means that they are acting deceitfully. They have plans and agendas which are not for the good of neighbor. Maybe we're thinking of slander and rumors. We're thinking of evil policies and personal direct speech. All sorts of levels of relationships horizontally that are damaged and corroded by lies. Well, you can't, you can't run a society if people can't be committed to the truth, can you? Not for very long, you can't. When people don't honor their word, when contracts are not considered worthy, if people bear false witness, if when we speak, we cannot trust one another's word, we are indeed in a very dark situation with our culture and society. And David here, David here says, there are people around me everywhere not committed to the truth. He uses the word flattery. In verse 2, with flattering lips. You know, the word flattery means to go smoothly with. It means their, their words just sort of glide over. They're, they're, not, they're not prickly words in the way that truth might cause us to be, you know, oh my goodness, taken aback by, by a shocking yet right observation. Rather, what our itching ears would want to hear might come in the form of flattery. Flattering lips and a double heart. That means there's dishonesty. Deliberate dishonesty. These people are not acting out of ignorance. 
They're acting out of duplicity. That's their agenda. Their words suppress the truth. Friends, one of the ways we love our neighbors is by telling the truth. One of the ways we love our neighbor is by being committed to the truth. And, and God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Which means telling lies is a form of rebellion against God. Flattery and deceptive speech. It's the effort of people to manipulate reality. To bend it to their wishes and agendas. Lying is ultimately an effort to be God over your circumstances and outcomes. To manipulate and bend what you think you can. But you can't live against reality and it work well for you. In verse 2 here, these flattering lips, he will say, Lord, cut them off in verse 3. So the situation is one of grave, deceptive, flattering speech. Even in our own culture, we can recognize a crisis of trust everywhere. Don't you see it? And we were talking about every institution and every establishment. This is a really serious situation that 2023 is in. Universities all over the place, crises of trust, the medical industry, the scientific community, politics, government agencies. And that's because as news reports and as social media's outreach reveals things, we realize there's a lot of shenanigans all over the place. And there's a crisis of trust. We look at chapter 12, verse 2, and says everyone utters lies. And we think that wasn't just a problem in David's day, then was it? Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You know what David said? He's calling to the Lord now. He realizes that when people are not committed to the truth, their heart problem has been manifest in such a way that the diminishment of neighbor is far-reaching and the great remedy that they need is an act of God. They need the act of God. And in this case, David prays for the wicked to be stopped. He says in verse 3, Lord, cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? You see, verses 3 and 4 is a prayer for judgment on the proud. Those who have exalted themselves and with their speech care nothing for neighbor but only to diminish and demean and corrupt. These flattering lips, he says, Lord, cut them off. And that means with that image to bring to an end their speech, their tongue that makes such great boasts. That's a harsh judgment, I think we could agree. Cutting off the lips and the tongue that makes the boasts. I don't think we're meant to read this literally, are we? It's a way of talking, though, with this metaphor of God bringing an end to where the problem is. And the problem is their lying, deceptive heart, uttering deceptive words rather than love for neighbor. These are not people committed to the truth. They have no commitment to it. They have disregarded the truth. They make great boasts. Well, boasts like what, for instance? Verse 4 tells us the kind of thing you could illustrate with their boasts. They say, you could summarize this, this is the gist of their position. With our tongue, we will prevail. So in other words, who's going to stop us? With With our wicked speech, it seems to be working. Look at what we've been able to do. Look at what we've been able to accomplish and get. Look at the gain we have acquired. So it looks to us like we've got the winning strategy. And so we're going to prevail with our tongue. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? 
And their pride, the self-exalting instinct that leads forth to these words, it's clear at the end of verse 4 with their question. Who is master over us? And the word master comes from the word translated when referring to God, Lord or Adonai. So when they say who is master over us, they say who's going to be Lord over us? It's human hubris, isn't it? Hubris to the uttermost and to, to the folly that is displayed here in their wicked speech. They are so confident they feel invincible. They feel so in control that no one can stop them. And it's not because they love the truth. It's not because they fear the Lord. It's not because they love the neighbor. It is all self-exalting from the beginning. Their ultimate problem is a lordship problem. What animates them? Look at the end of verse 4. Who is master over us? This is a self-exalting claim. Their implied answer is nobody's over us. We don't see any authority over us. We're the authority. So this is a striving for lordship over all of life. That's what they're engaged in. A striving after lordship over their lives. Rebellion against God is the pursuit of self-sovereignty. That's what rebellion is. And in verse 4, they are seeking to establish themselves as Lord over all. They want to be the arbiters of right and wrong. They want to be master over their lives and circumstances. They want to justify their ungodliness for whatever fleshly desires they pursue. Who is Lord over us? Well, the one who begins to speak actually in verse 5. Verse 5 is the answer to their question. It's not the answer they're looking for. It's not the answer they're expecting. It's not the answer they would want. But it is the answer. Who is Lord over us? The one who says in verse 5, I will now arise. This is the one. In verses 5 and 6, this is God's response. And we can read it in an ironic way as as the answer to their question. They weren't expecting this answer. But David says... By the placement of this verse, this is the answer to their question. Who is master over us with all of our wicked speech that we've been able to do this and achieve this? Who's going to stop us? We will prevail with our tongues. And God says in verses 5 and 6, his response to arise and deliver. God's response, verses 5 and 6. Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan. I will now arise. Why are the poor plundered and the needy groaning? Have we switched subjects? Because we've been talking about the wicked in verse 2 who utters lies to neighbor. And in verse 3, those with flattering lips and a tongue that makes great boasts. And in verse 4, who is master over us? Why are we talking about the needy who are groaning and the poor who are plundered? Because they are those on the receiving end of all the wicked's lies. In other words, God has risen to vindicate and to judge. So his response is to bring deliverance. God's servant David prayed in verse 1, Save, O Lord, and here he comes. Deliver, save. And God's response in verse 5 is, The poor are plundered, the needy groan, I'm coming. And when God comes, He comes to judge and to overthrow. And He comes to bring a reaping to the wicked's sowing. They should repent while there is time. 
They should turn to the living God as their refuge. Because outside the refuge of God, there is no refuge from his judgment. The poor are plundered, the needy groan. That means that the state of their poverty in this case is the result of wicked scheming against them. The poor are plundered, the needy groan, which means the state of their need is exacerbated by the plots against them. Needy are groaning and the poor are plundered. And God says, because of this, I will now arise. The psalmist has several places earlier than chapter 12 where he has called for God to arise. Each of these are Psalms of David. Chapter 3, 7, arise, O Lord. Chapter 7, 6, arise, O Lord. Chapter 9, 19, arise, O Lord. Chapter 10, 12, arise, O Lord. Our passage this morning in verse 5, I will now arise. He hears the cries of his people. He sees the plundering of the poor and the groaning of the needy. He sees the evil tongues and speech and actions of the wicked. And he brings judgment. They think they're so invincible, don't they? We will prevail. Who is master over us? And then the Lord of heaven and earth comes. In Exodus chapter 22, the law of God warned people from doing what in Exodus 12, David says is going on. In Exodus 22, 22, the Lord says, You shall not mistreat the widow, the fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And in Psalm 12, David says, save. And God says, I will now arise and arise to deliver and to judge. Now, what we've just read in verse five is going to be described with a very important image in verse six. The quotation of God's words are like what? Words that are trustworthy Words that are pure in all that they promise. In verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified seven times. It is the case with human speech that our words, even unintentionally, could be mixed with misunderstandings and ignorance and error. God's words are not like the words of people. In verse 6, his words are pure. And I think verse 6 is interpreting God's response in verse 5. So he says, the poor plundered, the needy grown, I will arise and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So they're calling out for salvation and deliverance, a refuge and safety. And God comes to judge the wicked and deliver his people. And in verse 6, these words are trustworthy. What God has said can be hoped in without being in vain. What verse 6 is meant to give us as an impression is that God's words are altogether true and therefore worthy of our total trust from our heart. It's a wonderful image. The image of silver being refined. You see, the silver could be mixed with various other materials that needed to be expunged. And the way this would work is you would have some furnace. This is picturing one that sits on the ground. And you put the silver into it and it eliminates the dross or other impurities. And this is not just a silver that is like sort of put through the fire and that it's then good enough. This is a picture of silver purified seven times over and over again to get the most incredible quality that is free of any impurities. God's words are free from any impurities. That's the image here in verse 6. What verse 6 is doing 
is not just describing the words in verse 5. The reason verse 6 is true about verse 5's words is because it's true about whatever God has said. So we could argue from the greater to the lesser, if all of God's words are like words refined by silver, totally trustworthy and pure, then we can certainly say what he does in verse 5 counts by implication. He's highlighting with this metaphor of verse 6, what is true for all of God's revelation. So you open up the book of Genesis. What do you find when you open up the book of Genesis? Pure words like silver refined in a furnace seven times, that's what you find. You open up the book of Isaiah, what do you find there? Pure words like silver refined in a furnace seven times, that's the book of Isaiah. You open up the Gospel of John or Paul's letter to the Romans or the Apocalypse of John of Revelation. What do you find when you open up God's words? Pure words like silver refined in a furnace seven times, that's what you find. To be trusted and known, to be loved and delighted in, these are the words of God. So when God says, I will now arise, David is saying, verse 6, Bless the sound of pure words if I've ever heard any. Ask the sound of pure, totally trustworthy speech of the living God. There's no darkness in Him. These are words of deliverance and light, deliverance and judgment. So the wicked should tremble in fear, and the righteous can take heart and courage because God arises. And in verses 7 and 8, we see at the end of our psalm today, God's protection in the face of evil. He says in verse 7, You, O Lord, will keep them. That first line, I think it's reaching back to verse 6. Verse 6 is described the words of God, pure words. What will God do with His words? He will keep them. That's what He will do. Verse 7 is saying with confidence to God, here's what you do with your words. You don't abandon your words. You don't make promises and then ignore them. You don't hope for fulfillment and make it eh, your best efforts partially. Instead, you, O Lord, keep all of your speech. For your words are pure and he's totally trustworthy. You, O Lord, will keep your words. Because God will keep his words, the second line is true. You will guard us. You will guard us from this generation forever. It's a picture of the psalmist's contemporaries, contemporaries that are filled with people who don't love God. They're antagonists to the things of God and to the Word of God. They're not neutral toward what the Bible declares. They hate what the Bible declares. I want you to know, friends, we are surrounded in our society and culture with people who are not just neutral about the Bible, but people who despise the Scriptures and who hate what Jesus says. And they hate the words of God. They despise the doctrines of the Scriptures. They loathe them. And I want you to know, friends, God keeps His words. They are pure, refined in a furnace seven times like silver. You can trust them. He will guard us from this generation forever. These, these in this generation are like the people who surround the king, the anointed one, in chapter 2. They rage and they plot and they gather together in their words and in their mutterings and in their conspiracies. And they say, let's burst the bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. But they do that ultimately in vain. For God is righteous and exalted over all. They say, who will prevail over us with our 
mighty tongues and speech. But God is Lord of all. They can reject His Lordship. But the rejection of His Lordship doesn't cancel His Lordship. The rejection of His Lordship puts them in defiance of the one who remains Lord of all. You will guard us, He says to the Lord, from this generation forever. This is confidence in God, verses 7 and 8. God's protection of His people in the face of evil. We can pray this, friends. We can echo the cry of David that God would save, deliver in verse 1. And that we can call upon the Lord to keep His words which He has pledged to do. And that He will guard us because He loves us as His people. In verse 8, why is it necessary that verse 7 is prayed? Because the setting in verse 8 is circumstantially grim and rife with evil. Verse 8 says, on Every side, the wicked proud. So it's not like David looks around and says, well, it's just an issue in that direction, actually. No, it looks like the prevailing wicked winds are blowing from north, south, east, and west. And and David is saying, Lord, from every direction, it seems the wicked are prowling and plotting. And the word prowl here means to prowl or walk proudly. Not in secret, but in public and open shamelessness. To prowl about like this is translated by one writer with the word strut. The wicked strut to walk openly, flaunting their wickedness. And the reason that kind of public flaunting or openness is clear is the second line confirms it. Vileness is exalted among the children of man. You know what happens as wicked hearts have their way in their lives and toward their neighbors? They end up calling evil good and good evil. Because their conscience is seared. And their moral impulses and discretion is overcome by hardness of heart and desires of the flesh. On every side, David says, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. And so David says... Save, deliver. We must pray this. In the midst of moral confusion and depravity, we are the people of God who call upon the Lord. Despite the fierceness of the cultural winds. Lies are popular, flattering lips are everywhere. What do we do instead? We confess what is true. We care about the truth because we want to love our neighbor. Moral autonomy And the seizing of lordship over life is the direction the cultural winds are blowing. What do we do? Well, we hold to the authority of Scripture instead. And we submit our lives to the Holy Spirit-inspired words of the living God. We preach Christ crucified. We believe the gospel is the power of God to save Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, no matter their ethnic background, no matter their economic standing, no matter their prior sins and scope of rebellion, the gospel saves. So we proclaim that the power of the gospel saves sinners like us. That he takes sinners like us and he makes new creations by the power of his Holy Spirit. He forgives us of our sins, not just some of them, but all our sins nailed to the cross. And this forgiveness is the result of being clothed in righteousness that wasn't our own, but is counted to us, counted to us by the gracious, merciful work of God by faith. 
You know, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, believers around the world remember when Jesus rides a donkey toward Jerusalem, the city in which he will be rejected by his own. He will be condemned and they will yell, crucify him, crucify him. And our sins will be placed upon him that he might have righteousness counted toward all those who come to him for refuge. So we say to you this morning, flee to Christ, trust in Christ, the refuge of sinners, the Savior of sinners. This Palm Sunday scene is described in Matthew 21. The disciples are sent to secure a donkey, and they do. Jesus receives this donkey from them, and and he gets upon this donkey, and as he's going to Jerusalem, the crowd spreads their cloaks on the road, and they cut down branches from trees. They spread those on the road also. It's the picture of as much as you could rolling out a red carpet in the ancient world. It's a way of of saying, but put put down something that's unusual here so that we can say with our actions what we believe. But they didn't just have to act it. They also said it. You know, they said in Matthew 21 and in verse 9, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a beautiful word. Hosanna is... A very simple meaning. It means save. It means deliver. It's the same idea of Psalm 12, actually. When David prays in Psalm 12, 1, save, O Lord. You know what David is saying? Hosanna, deliver us. When David was king in Psalm 12. It's clear if he's praying, save us, O Lord. He is king, but he is not the deliverer. He's king of Israel calling out for salvation. It's clear he's not the Savior. David knew promises. The promises given to David in covenant is that one would come, a son to be born from the the line of David, and this offspring from David's line would come to be the enthroned king ruling forever. David is king in Psalm 12, but it will be the son of David who will be the Savior. It will be the descendant of David who comes to deliver, and on Palm Sunday... He's upon a donkey and he's heading to Jerusalem and they cry out to him, save, deliver, because God has come in the flesh to do that, answering the cry of people long past Psalm chapter 12 circumstances. The rescuing grace of God had moved near to sinners. Hosanna, save, son of David. Deliver us, son of David. That's what they cried. That's what we cry today. We cry for the Lord. Not for His first advent to be completed in His earthly mission and ministry. The cross is behind us. We long in remembrance for the power of the cross to do all its glorious work as sinners are brought to Him. We look to His return and we say, save! We say, deliver us! Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who will Come in the name of the Lord. Let's pray.